Triple takes 360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306. 306. 360 degrees. High high. Broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory. This is Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. On tonight's show, we feature voices of women at the front lines of climate justice. Lawyers, poets, indigenous leaders, regenerative farmers, and more. We'll also discuss some changes that may be coming to a local Bay Area monument, the historic women's building in San Francisco. That's coming up on Full Circle, where your hosts, Mari Nakagawa and Kenny C. Keep it locked. Good evening, everyone, and again, welcome to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA in Berkeley and kpfa.org. Last month, as many of you know, San Francisco hosted the 2018 Global Climate Action Summit. And while global leaders and tech giants met and co-mingled, many grassroots organizers decided instead to hold space for vital conversations that were being left out of the mainstream. One of these gatherings was the Women's Assembly for Climate Justice, organized by We Can, a solutions-based effort to engage women worldwide to take action as powerful stakeholders in climate change and sustainability solutions. One of Full Circle's newest apprentices, Hannah Wilson, was in attendance. The voices you hear tonight were recorded by her, so special thanks to Hannah. First up, we hear from Candy Mossett-White of the Mandan Hidatsa Arikata tribes of what is sometimes called North Dakota. Candy is a leading force in the movement to combat environmental racism in North Dakota. Here she is at the 2018 Climate Summit. So dosha marigots, marishima ishuia hits. And in my head adds a language, I just said hello relatives. My name is Eagle Woman. My English name, sometimes I say colonized name, is Candy Mossett White, recently married. Um, and I just want to recognize the original peoples of the land of where we are and to thank the original peoples for allowing us to be here today, even though there's a lot of buildings that have come up around since, and just recognize and respect that there were a lot of tribal nations that were here prior to a lot of us. <laughs> so um, um, I'm from North Dakota, uh, born and raised in, the, in a little town called Hazen, North Dakota. I was born, uh, which was the closest hospital at the time when my mom was pregnant with me many years ago. We'd say ma ditigoa in my language. Um, it's been an interesting, <laughs> it's been an interesting time for me. Um, growing up in North Dakota was awesome. 
as a child, I was like, oh man, this is God's country. Um, it's the Badlands. A lot of people think of North Dakota as flat. How many of you have been there? Raise your hand. Whoa, that's a lot. <laughs> Usually I get like one or two. Um, on the western side, it's the Badlands. It's really beautiful. And I grew up with my grandparents near Twin Buttes, just playing outside all the time. We couldn't be inside, in fact. It wasn't like today. Grandma would be like, get outside and play, kids. And we would, and we'd go choke cherry picking with her, and we'd be like, oh my God, five gallon buckets, filling them up with choke cherries. And then we'd be like, yes, we're done. And we'd get back to the house, and she'd say, now take all the little stems off each one that you didn't get off. And then we'd be like, oh man. Until then, until we had like pancakes with choke cherry jam or something. Then we were like, whoa, you know, we helped do this. And in the middle of winter, when we still had that choke cherry that we canned, we'd be like, yes, we helped do this. Or the turnips that we used to help her pick all the time. It was so good to just crunch on them. Um, anybody ever have a turnip from the prairies? Yeah, they're so good. Unless you wait too long, then they turn into wood. But... <laughs> Um, that's what I remember growing up. I was just thinking, this is the best place in the world. Um, I did have a lot of people around me that were sick a lot in North Dakota, um, at home on the reservation called Fort Berthold by the government. It's the Mandan, Hidatsa, Rikara nations. We were all put there. And I used to think that it was normal to be sick. I went away to college and I realized that a lot of people around me were like, why do you know so many people that have cancer? I was like, don't you? And they were like, No. And then I was 20 when I got cancer. So I was like, oh, this is normal. And I had to wait a week to get into my emergency health appointment and to, the, to get into Indian Health Service. By that time, the lump I had found in my stomach had gone from pea size to walnut size in six days. Turned out I had a stage four sarcoma tumor. And <laughs> my prognosis wasn't good. So my, I remember my mom crying and everybody being around me crying and me telling them it's going to be okay, you know, like patting them on the back and stuff and thinking at that time, it is going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. I really felt like that was going to be fine. But then the, the doctors and stuff would make me feel unsure and I refused chemotherapy. I refused radiation and there was nothing they could do about it because I was 20. I could make my own decisions and I wanted to have children one day. And that stuff destroys the good cells along with the bad cells. Ten years after that, they said I was legally cured. Um, but in that ten years, I lost friends that had cancers that weren't even as bad as mine. So there are children walking around Fort Berthold today that are orphans. Because they have no more parents lost to cancer. This is in our 30s. And now we have babies that are being born with RSV, which is an upper respiratory symptom. And I started learning that this is all because of the coal-fired power plants that exist in North Dakota, which is the first onslaught. Every single bit of our over 11,000 miles of rivers, lakes, and streams is contaminated with mercury. So you can only eat fish that are this big, and you can only eat them once a month, especially if you're pregnant, which I just so happen to be pregnant right now. <laughs> But it hasn't been easy. My daughter's five. I've had two miscarriages prior to this. And I blame it on the industry. I blame it on the water I'm drinking because after coal came fracking. 
And fracking has been going on full swing in North Dakota since 2006. Since the Halliburton loophole was passed in 2005, the Energy Policy Act, where they were able to make a loophole on the chemicals that they put in the fracking. It's like Hershey's chocolate. It's proprietary information. They don't have to tell what chemicals they're using, these companies. So even if a cow or a horse drinks water, that's frack water, and drops over dead, and you test its blood, and you see what's in there, and you know that's the chemicals the company's using, you can't do anything about it in court. And this is thanks to Dick Cheney, who was the vice president at the time, and who was also the CEO of Halliburton at the time. So if you wonder why fracking is so bad in this country and why they're getting away with so much, it's because of that 2005 Energy Policy Act that was changed. And then came the man camps, and then came all these people from around the world. So what happened to the women? Violence increased. We started getting raped. Babies, boys going into camps. Mothers intentionally selling their children into the sex slave trade, and they still don't talk about it. They still don't talk about sex trafficking. We just recently found Olivia Lombert, who went missing last October. She was found in the lake. We still don't know exactly what happened to her the night she disappeared and why she ended up in the lake. Add another one to the list of missing and murdered indigenous women, because violence against the earth is violence against women. When that happens, we feel it. It's our blood memory. When we see them digging, just like at Dakota Access Pipeline, why were women running out there doing our war cries? Because we had to put our bodies on the line to physically stop this, which is raping and killing the earth. It is raping and killing us. We have a right to not only survive and thrive we have a right to have our children survive and thrive we have a right to be able to carry our babies full term and we have a right to be able to have a voice for them when they can't speak for themselves my daughter's not accredited to go into that gcast summit yet they're making decisions that are going to impact her This has got to end, and we've been saying it for over 500 years as Native nations, yet we're stronger together now because we see the strength in our diversity. Our sisters from the global south are connecting with our sisters from the global north. We're fighting back, and we're saying we're not going to take it anymore. We're not taking your laws and regulations. We're going to put our bodies on the line. Are you with us? The power is with us. The power is with the people. Don't let them believe the status quo of business as usual. And this is just the way it is. Supply and demand. I'm so sick and tired of them telling me it's supply and demand. How did you get to that action? How did you get to the Dakota Access Pipeline? I drove my hybrid vehicle, which took me like 12 years to pay off. Do I want to drive a Tesla? Sure. I can't afford it. Why are you allowed to build gas-guzzling vehicles that we know are killing the planet? Why are you allowed to make styrofoam that you know doesn't break down? Don't put that crap on the shelves. You are the ones that know it's bad. If I see one more commercial that tells me to turn off the water when I'm brushing my teeth while industry is wasting and poisoning billions of gallons of water every minute as we speak, I'm going to scream. They need to take responsibility. <laughs> 
Rodríguez. We have the power. The people have the power. We're the ones. We just need to make our voices a little bit louder. We need to collectively say, you take the industry. You're the, you're the ones industry that has the blame. Stop blaming it on the people because the people have the power and we're sick and tired and we're speaking up. And I just want to end by saying, people, you say power. People, 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 people. Candy Mossett White, the voice you just heard. This is Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. Candy is lead organizer on the Extreme Energy and Just Transition campaign with the Indigenous Environmental Network. She was speaking at this year's Women's Assembly for Climate Justice. Her speech was recorded by Full Circle's Hannah Wilson. So tonight is a very special show because tonight we give voice to women who are on the front lines in the fight for sustainable communities, land and ocean stewardship, and inclusive economic growth. A big thank you to Candy for sharing her story. Up next, Nina Gualinga speaks about her experiences as an indigenous woman growing up in the Ecuadorian Amazon. My name is Nina Gualinga. My mother is from the Quechua people of Sarayaku in the Ecuadorian Amazon, and my father is Swedish. I grew up in the Ecuadorian Amazon with my mother's family, my grandmother, my grandfather. So I've seen the beauty of life in the Amazon, life on earth, life on the land. I grew up barefoot, playing in the river, playing in the trees, working with my grandmother, getting up 4 a.m. to drink Wayusa tea and talk about our dreams, our future, our vision, um, about our family, about education, and um, then go to the chakra where we plant our yucca and our plantains, work there all day, go back, eat some fresh fish, watch the stars and listen to my grandmother's stories about what all the stars meant, the stories about the stars. So the forest and my grandmother taught me the meaning of the sacred songs, the secrets of the forest. The Amazon, the rainforest is really a magical place. But as I said, my father is Swedish and I've also seen the privilege of being a Swedish uh, person and how that privilege is also destroying this beautiful rainforest and home that I also come from. When I was eight years old, I was living in Sarayaku, where my mother is from, and um, this peaceful life become threatened by oil companies and an Argentinian oil company called CGC. And I remember as if it was yesterday, this man called Ricardo Nicolás came to Sarayaku to a big meeting with all the women and children, men, elders, 
and he was offering us rice, tuna. He was offering us all kinds of things, believing that, you know, we would change. We, were, we would change our territory for, for what he was offering. The women told him to go back to Argentina. Um, they were really angry. At that time, I did not speak Spanish, but, you know, you don't have to speak or understand the language to understand what, um, what people were feeling because they were speaking in Spanish to him. And um, in our village, we speak Quichua, uh, just to clarify. And um, he then offered us $10,000 It sounded like a lot of money because at that time we did not have money in the community. And we had a discussion about this with our people. And it turned out that it was $10 per person because we were about a thousand people in our community. So yeah, that was a really bad deal. And I was really angry because I felt like, you know, this, w this was really an insult And the women were really, really, really angry, and they were screaming at him and telling him to go back. And I called this my first act of resistance. So after this meeting, this man came up to us children and offered us apples, because there were no apples at that time in our community. The access to the community was really difficult, and we don't grow apples. And I told him no, and I ran away. And ever since that, I made myself a promise that I would defend my home no matter what. And if I couldn't do that, I would never go back. And I'm still living there. I had my firstborn child there in the middle of the Amazon. And we managed to kick the oil companies out of our territory. I recognize a lot of uh, what Candy was saying. You know, it's really thanks to those people and these women that are putting their bodies um, on the front lines that are actually, you know, risking their own lives that we still have rainforests, that we still have landscapes that are untouched and pristine. And, you know... It's the only real way to fight climate change, to keep fossil fuels in the ground. There is no other way. There's, you know, the carbon market, climate compensations, whatever politics that the politicians are making are not working. The only way is to keep fossil fuels in the ground. And the only way to do that really is supporting indigenous people. Thank you. Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. You just heard the voice of Nina Gualinga sharing her experiences going up against big oil in her homeland of the Ecuadorian Amazon. Tonight, we are honoring the actions that many brave women are taking to challenge big oil, big banks, and big ag to preserve their communities and the land upon which we live, the water we drink, and the air we breathe for generations to come. All of the voices you are hearing tonight are from the Women's Assembly at the Global Climate Action Summit held earlier this month in San Francisco. Thanks to First Voice Apprentice Hannah Wilson for the audio.
Up next, we have a very special guest in studio with us to speak about an exciting opportunity for the historic Women's Building in San Francisco. But first, some music. Hey, 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 Yakio, Yakio, hey, hey, Yakio, Yakio, hey, hey, Yakio. Welcome back to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. You just heard Maria Dorsey of Idle No More Bay Area singing live at the Women's Assembly. We're your hosts tonight, Mari Nakagawa and Kenny C., and we're honored to bring you the voices of some of the fierce women speaking at the Global Climate Action Summit earlier this month. In studio with us live tonight, we have one of Full Circle's very own fierce women, Miss Vilma V from Sueños del Fuego. She's a lawyer, a mother, and an independent media maker making space for women and women's rights in this oftentimes hostile world we live in. Tonight, she's here to talk with us a bit about what we can do to help preserve the historic women's building, the first woman-owned and operated community center in San Francisco. Today, the women's building houses organizations focused on improving the lives of women, girls, and families. It is a place we can go for job search assistance, for tech tutoring, for legal help, for health and wellness classes, for fresh food, and much, much more. So excited to have you here tonight, Vilma. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here with you guys. Shout out to Group 39, Sueños del Fuego. (laughs) So tell us, what's the deal with the women's building? How long has it been around? Well, it's been around since 1979, and it was founded by a group of women, lesbian women, um, who were looking for a space to meet, to connect, to do activism, and could not find a place that was welcoming to them, that was safe, that was inexpensive. So they founded the Women's Building in 1979. And I love your intro where you talked about it is a place for job search assistance and tech tutoring, all these things. It's that, and also a landlord, a nonprofit landlord, to nine different women-centered, girl-centered nonprofits, including San Francisco Women Against Rape, who's been there since our founding, Um, the Immigrant Center for Women and Children, Girls on the Run, Girl Ventures, Mujeres Unidas y Activas, lots of groups. So it is a great place for women in San Francisco, in the Bay. And tomorrow, there's actually an open house, community yoga, free yoga class, as part of this contest I'll talk to you about. And that's from 12 to 2 p.m. And can you tell us a bit about the artistic structure of the building? It's very famous in the sense. It's a very famous building, exactly. And 
And it's old. <laughs> the building is an old building. It actually was originally the Sons of Norway. And for people, it's a Sons of Norway building, kind of like an Elks Club. And for people who are familiar with the city, it used to also have a bar called the Dover Club in the corner. And since the bar's gone, it's a full-on women-owned space. And the building windows are 108 years old. Wow. And there's a current contest sponsored by National Geographic and American Express and it is there's a two million dollar pot of money and uh, the the buildings that get the most email votes get a good chunk of that money and we are trying to get the women's building $150,000 to retrofit all the windows which are like I said 108 years old and to get them to open and close and what's cool about it is it's not like we win and these other buildings lose there's literally two million dollars worth and some of the other buildings that are um, featured in this contest is the 16th Street Baptist Church in Alabama which is where the four little girls were killed the (laughs) National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, um, the Church of the Epiphany in L.A., which is considered the birthplace of the Chicano uh, mm. movement, and uh, the Hispanic Society, all these great places. So you can go to VoteYourMainStreet.org, you put in your email, and uh, you has to go get confirmed, so it has to be a real email, and then you can start voting. You have to put a password, which is Windows, Mujeres, whatever, and then you can go to the site, VoteYourMainStreet.org, and vote for the Women's Building. You get five votes every day, so, you know, you can give two or three votes one day to the Baptist Church or the Hispanic Society in New York. You can vote every day, and the contest ends exactly one week from today. And so, can you tell us a little bit about why this space is so important. You know, we've been talking, this whole show is about um, women spearheading movements, and I'm sure there's so many reasons how this fits in, but can you talk a little about that? Yeah, um, I've, I want to say that I've been, I didn't get a chance to listen to it, a lot of the um, speeches, so I love the content that you guys have pulled, and shout out to Hannah uh, for providing this. Amazing. I really believe that women working together is what we need in the world today, that there's a lot of male energy and was toxic. Like it's kind of we're out of balance. Just like this young woman was saying about really hurting Mother Earth, really hurting women. So to have the spirit, the place where women energy can coalesce. And can, I mean, from the outside of the building with the amazing murals and the uh, inside with the amazing work is exactly what we need right now. And we need more of it. And uh, this is a place that has always been a focal point for activism, for service. And it's just about keeping it healthy, keeping it good, keeping the windows um, working. And a good place for people to work. Yes. Sure. Creating yes. safe spaces. Exactly. And then um, we are also involved in the sexual harassment um, project to end sexual assault and harassment because that's been happening a lot. Me too. So there's an event there that's happening November 14th. And that's sort of after the election. So if people are sad, mm-hmm. don't know what to do, they can check out Me Too and her and they. And that's November 14th. But the big thing is to go voteyourmainstreet.org in San Francisco. And also tomorrow, if you've never been to the Women's Building, if you're listening to this and say, oh, that's interesting. I've walked by it. I've never gone inside. I'm intrigued by the murals. Tomorrow's an open house. It's part of this uh, contest. And it's a free community yoga class from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. And so... Everyone who can hear my voice is invited to come to the Women's Building <laughs> to check this out. And not just tomorrow, but anytime. But if they can vote with their email, that would be fantastic until next Friday. Great. If we can hop on BART, I'm going to be there tomorrow. Yeah, I'll be there for sure. So so yoga. It's voteyourmainstreet.org slash San Francisco. That's it. And Vilma, you also brought us a PSA, so we're going to listen to that right now. 
You're invited to the Women's Building at 3543 18th Street in San Francisco on Wednesday, November 14th from 6 to 9 p.m. for Me Too and Her and They, an evening of inspiration and motivation to end sexual assault and harassment in San Francisco. This event includes poetry by San Francisco Poet Laureate Kim Shuck and features a panel discussion with UC Davis Professor Clarissa Rojas, Commissioner Brianna Zwart, and Stanford Professor Michelle Dauber, who led the first successful recall effort of a sitting judge in over 70 years. This exciting event on November 14th is a benefit for the Women's Building and is wheelchair accessible. For more information, call 415-431-1180 or visit www.womensbuilding.org. De la tierra soy, de la tierra soy, de la tierra soy yo, oh, oh, oh. de la tierra soy, de la tierra soy, de la tierra soy yo, oh, oh, oh. no tengo miedo, no, no tengo miedo, no, no tengo miedo, no, oh, oh, oh. porque de las montañas soy. Las montañas soy, de las montañas soy yo, oh, oh, de los ríos soy, de los ríos soy, de los ríos soy yo, oh, oh, no tengo miedo, no, no tengo miedo, no, no tengo miedo, no, oh, oh, de los cielos soy, de los cielos soy, de los cielos soy yo. Oh, 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 no tengo miedo, no, no tengo miedo, no, no tengo miedo, no, porque de la tierra soy, de la tierra soy, de la tierra soy yo, oh, oh, oh. That was Maria Dorsey again from the organization of I Don't Know More Bay Area. You're listening to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. And before that, we were speaking with Vilma V about the contest raising money for the women's building in San Francisco. So tonight, Kendall and I are super honored to bring you the voices of women at the forefront of the fight for land justice. All the audio you hear was recorded by First Voice Media's Hannah Wilson. Up next, we hear from Elizabeth Kaiser speaking about her work in sustainable farming. Elizabeth is a regenerative farmer and owner-operator of Singing Farm Frog... Or Singing... Singing Frog... <laughs> singing Frog's Farm in Sebastopol, California. Thank you, Kendall. Here we go. Good afternoon. My name is Elizabeth. I'm really, truly honored to be in such a room of so, so many powerful women talking about climate change. And I really honor and love all the talk that we've had about all the extraction and stopping the fossil fuels and so forth. And I want to add a different piece to that also, the regenerative agriculture piece. And I'm going to use the lens of my own farm, which is up in Sonoma County, to describe to you what that is. I want us to understand how by misusing the soil we have released so much carbon into the air and how by working with mother nature we can take that same carbon and bring it right back down while still feeding our communities and working with nature. So this is my farm up in Sonoma County and it is small 
The whole, whole property is eight acres, but a lot of that is ponds and wild space and so forth. What we actually farm is two and a half acres of land. We grow vegetables. We do a CSA. We do farmer's markets. I work with a couple of restaurants. I'm very proud to say that 97% of my food stays within 15 miles of our farm, feeding our community. And I don't want to talk about this in terms of look at me, look at how great I am. I also want to talk about this in terms of women and farmers all over the world farm on small plots more often than they farm on these 200,000 acre farms. And I want us to understand it in that context. And I'll talk about that in the end real quick. But I'm going to take a step all the way back and let's actually talk about soil and let's talk about what soil is. Most of soil is mineral, air, and water. And there's a tiny little section of that that is organic matter, soil organic matter. And if you look at that, an even smaller section of that is living, uh, living organisms. Most of those microorganisms, the bacteria, the fungi, the protozoa, so forth and so on. It's part of that is roots and the rest of that is humus. Humus just means the decomposing parts of those bodies that is going to be life again. Their excrement, all of that, that is what gives life to soil. However, tillage disrupts that. Tillage is what we think about when we think, you know, if you think about a tractor going through, taking a field and making it clean, right? All brown and barren so that we can just put in what we want. I want you to understand what tillage does. So soil naturally isn't this nice little powdery stuff. It's big old clumps like this. And when you have a tractor running through, ripping through that, that part of mother nature, what happens is those big chunks become smaller chunks. You have more surface area than compared to the volume. So let's talk what happens in a chemical way. What happens is you've got more oxygen relating to that soil organic matter that, I didn't say this, but it was on the slide before, 57% of soil organic matter is carbon. That C, that carbon from that soil joins with the oxygen and poof, becomes carbon dioxide. Nitrogen also joins with that and becomes nitrous oxide. So that's the chemical side of stuff. But now let's talk about the biological part of that. We live on planet Earth. There are many, many planets in our solar system that have chemistry. We are the only one that we know of that has biology. Biology is super, super important. Take that same aggregate, that clump of soil, run that tractor, or it can be a horse and plow, or it can be a rototiller or your garden fork. I don't care what it is, but you're disrupting that and you're breaking that up. Now imagine that that is your community, that is your ecosystem, it's being broken apart and you're bringing oxygen in where you shouldn't be bringing it in. It's a complete destruction of that. So I love this quote from the USDA and you're going to see me use a couple quotes from big organizations like the USDA. You know what? They've actually got good science and if they know it's bad, then I'm sorry, it's really bad. So I love this quote. Tilling the soil is the equivalent of an earthquake, hurricane, tornado, and forest fire occurring simultaneously to the world of soil organisms. Simply stated, it's bad, right? So imagine that's your community and your tiny little bacteria. Yeah, that's bad if it gets completely obliterated. And so we're losing all those microorganisms just by the complete obliteration of their ecosystem. And those microorganisms are super, super important in terms of bringing that carbon back down, helping our plants grow, giving them the nutrients they, they need, helping them um, be more healthy for us when we consume them and for um, uh, other plants and animals. So going back to that idea of soil organic matter, they believe that fertile soils used to have 6 to 10% soil organic matter. 
through the act of tillage over the years, and I shouldn't say it's all tillage, it's also a lot of the biocides, and by biocides I mean herbicides and pesticides and fungicides and etc., etc., killing the microbiology, not allowing Mother Nature and the soil to work in the way that it should. Our topsoils today are 0 to 3% soil organic matter. In fact, California only has a 1% soil organic matter. And yet... Through agriculture, we can actually sequester much more uh, carbon and we can mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions much more than possible. On our farm, we've brought our soil organic matter up from 2% to 10 to 11% and we've kept it there. And we've done it by doing these soil management principles, which again come from the USDA. And I have other farmers who do, for instance, 3,000 acres of um, grain and uh, cattle who have done just the same, bringing their soil organic matter from like 1% to 11%. They use the same soil principles. So I'm just going to run through them very quickly. Disturb the soil as little as possible. Well, I just explained to you why we want to do that. The next really important one is keep living plants in the ground as much as possible. And this is why photosynthesis, again, mother nature. I'm going to take you to middle school biology. What is happening in a plant? It's taking in the CO2. It's taking off the carbon. It's creating glucose. It's resynthesizing that, you know, what? 30 to 70% of the carbon-based products that it makes does not use for itself. It pushes out as exudates into the soil to feed its community that is going to feed it. So that's uh, resynthesis and exudation, pushing it out, creating humus. And this is what it looks like. This is a root hair pushing liquid sun sugars into the soil. This is how we can capture that carbon, putting it back down into the soil to feed the communities in the ground. And then what does it do? You go from plants back to bacteria and fungi, up to larger organisms, larger organisms, and larger organisms. And this is how we do it on our farm, doing many, many crops in succession, trying to work as much as we can with Mother Nature growing as many different species as we can. So not an acre of broccoli and then an acre of broccoli, but there's at least 12 different species in there, mixing them up as much as we can. Again, having many different crops in, also having perennials in because perennials are going to bring in larger life, our beneficial insects and things like that. Sorry, keep the soil covered at all time because we don't want it to off gas. We want to keep those organisms in the soil as happy as possible incorporating animals. I just talked about that. All these animals, they are working with me on my farm to eat and to help me grow my crops. I'm not going to go into compost. Um, regenerative agriculture is what this is called. Often people will call it carbon farming. I do it in terms of vegetables, but also it can be done in terms of grain and animals. And just one tiny more slide. I'm sorry. I just want to say that small shareholders worldwide who are doing this on two acres or less, this is a great study. Who will feed the world? The peasant food web or the industrial food system? The peasant food web, people on under two acres, produce more than 70% of the world's food using less than 20% of the resources that all of agriculture uses. And I'm just going to stop there because I think that's a super important point. You are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. You just heard the voice of Elizabeth Kaiser sharing the knowledge she's gained working as both owner and operator of Singing Frogs Farm in Sebastopol, California. Thank you, Elizabeth. Up next, we'll hear from Michelle Cook, indigenous leader and human rights lawyer, spearheading the movement to divest from fossil fuels. 
Hello, everyone. Yat Aish A. Michelle Cook in this year. Hanagatni Nishlint, Bilagana Buses Chain, Tol Bahi Dashich A. Bilagana Dashanelli. My name is Michelle Cook. I am born of the one who walks around you clan of the Dene Nation. And this is how I identify myself as a Dene woman. I want to first of all thank We Can and all of the incredible volunteers who have worked so hard. Osprey and We Can has been incredibly helpful for indigenous peoples and for our ability to actually go to Europe to be able to meet with um, these financial decision makers and to speak our truth to them. So we're very thankful for you, Osprey. So I'm here to talk a couple about a couple things. Um, one is um, the problem with banks and financial institutions, and then I'll go into what I think are some solutions to the financial problems that we have. So I'm not sure if all of you all are familiar, but around eight men own half of the world's wealth. And just repeat that, eight men on this planet own half of the world's wealth. So there's a couple problems with that. Uh, (laughs) One, um, men should not be um, in control of this planet's resources. And they should not be in control of 50% of the world's wealth. So when we're looking at banks, we're looking at issues of historic and contemporary resource extraction. The banks historically and currently really were created to finance colonization of the new world. And in fact, many of the first banks that were created were created in Europe and Venice to ensure the the voyages that were coming to the new world for gold. And so when we talk about why we go to Europe as opposed to any other banks, part of how we're able to deconstruct and understand banks and financial institutions is by understanding their creation story, but understanding the origins of these institutions. And as indigenous peoples, we have something very important to share because as indigenous peoples, we remember a time before Wall Street. We remember a time when women were in control of their economies. In fact, we're just doing what we have always done as indigenous women, and that is to protect our people and to protect our future generations. And so I'm just carrying on that tradition of my ancestors. And so the banks play a fundamental role in the colonization and the human rights abuses that indigenous peoples are currently experiencing. Throughout the world, indigenous peoples face extinction as a result of natural resource extraction in their territories. And these banks, very often they know, they've been put on notice about these violations. However, when we begin to look at um, the mechanisms of accountability for those human rights violations, we find that there is no accountability for these financial institutions. So that's not only a problem for indigenous peoples, but that's also a problem fundamentally for American citizens and for the world. How is it that these banks, of which each one of us have a bank account, how is it that they are not accountable? So there's fundamental problems within the legal frameworks 
In fact, what we need to do and what we've found through our process of looking for accountability is that we have to create these legal norms and standards relating to bank accountability. And in fact, what's really interesting is that the banks and the experts, they don't even know how to keep themselves accountable. And so when we were in Switzerland, for example, we met with a parliamentarian and he said, well, what do you think we should do? (laughs) Which, you know, was problematic because... He's supposed to know what to do. So as indigenous peoples, we're very fundamental to looking at the solutions. And one of the solutions that we have to get a grip on is securing indigenous people's land tenure in the United States of America. Yeah. If, if we do not get anything out of this climate change meeting, climate change is directly connected to racism. The only way that we are going to fix this problem of climate change is to confront and combat racism because indigenous peoples do not have human rights in the United States. We do not have property rights in the United States. I don't know if any of you have recently heard about the Supreme Court decision that came down this week that denied the Wampanoag Nation of Massachusetts, the original, the individual tribes that welcomed the settlers, that the Supreme Court denied their human rights this week to hold their land and to trust. This week, land dispossession is occurring in the United States against indigenous peoples, and it is normal. It is normal here in the United States for our people not to have rights. And so if we are serious, serious about saving this planet and keeping our world from burning, we have to secure indigenous people's land rights in the United States, and that means challenging the domestic legal system here implementing human rights standards that are found in the United Nations Declaration on Indigenous Peoples. Again, one of the problems in the United States is that indigenous peoples do not have the right to consent. They do not have the right to say no to harmful development in their territories. What we have in the United States is a coercive and broken consultation policy, which only applies to so-called federally recognized tribes. And so when we look at what's happening right now as we speak in Louisiana, the Huma Nation, they were not even given the opportunity to have the U.S.'s um, benefit of consultation because their tribe is not recognized by the United States government. So we have to also implement the right of free prior and informed consent, not just consultation in the United States of America. And so back again to you know racism, what is, a, what is the worth of a fossil-free world if indigenous peoples are still considered second-class citizens It's not a world that I want a part of. My people deserve to be treated equally. And so, um, and again, when we're we're looking at the solutions, you know, people are always like, oh, well, these banks are so powerful. These banks are so, so bad. But, you know, we are the monster slayers. 
We are the powerful ones. And we are the ones who have come to slay these monsters. We are the ones who are powerful. And those banks, they understand that. And business is not going to continue as normal because indigenous peoples are going to demand that we have a place at the table when we're we're talking about investments in oil and gas in the United States. And also when we're talking about solutions, we have solutions that are so ancient they seem new. And indigenous peoples here in the United States, we remember a time before currency. In fact, we remember a time when wampum, when wampum was the first currency of the United States of America. In 1605, the Massachusetts Bay Colony recognized wampum as the currency of the American colonies. And so indigenous peoples have always played an important role in the United States economy. And we have always had our own systems of trade and value and wealth. And it's in those ancient systems, I believe, that we're going to be able to find the solutions for our contemporary problems. And so in conclusion, I just want to make sure that um, as we go forward that we understand that solutions to climate change cannot happen without securing indigenous people's rights. And we are very far away from where we should be. But that doesn't mean that we aren't going to be able to get there through hard work and determination and strategic organizing. So thank you all so much for having me. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. That was the voice of Michelle Cook, Danae, human rights lawyer, founder and co-director of the Divest, Invest, Protect campaign. And I really love Michelle's speech and wanted to include it for two reasons. One, she gives us that amazing history lesson on what is largely an uninterrupted history of banks financing colonial projects. From the so-called age of discovery all the way up to present day, pillaging land for profit. And two, projects like DAPL, like Keystone XL, are only made possible through the denial of indigenous sovereignty and self-determination. And that's why I think this women's assembly that we've been broadcasting today is, it really addresses in the context of the larger climate summit that this is a fight not just for the environment, but for justice, and that we can solve our environmental issues by also striving for justice. I agree wholeheartedly, Mari, and I really appreciate that last piece. Um, It reminds me of what was said earlier about how the way we treat our earth is the way we treat our women about, you know, Candy had said violence against the earth is violence against women and how the earth is our mother and how she should be treated with this kind of respect. So we've heard some really powerful reflections tonight, folks. And unfortunately, we're almost to the end of tonight's show, but we do have one more piece to leave you with. Also in attendance at last month's Women Assembly was Kathy Gentile Kishner, poet and co-founder of Jojakum, Youth for a Greener Environment in the Marshall Islands. She is also the daughter of Hilda Hine, the first ever woman president of the Marshall Islands. Let's listen to a poem she created. So, um, I, the poem that I'm going to share with you all today is a poem that I wrote, one of my more recent poems that I wrote. 
Um, I'm very fortunate that because of my performance at the United Nations Climate Summit in 2014, I've been able to enter more and more spaces and discussions on climate change using poetry and using my own personal experiences. And so this past summer, the Vatican invited me to write a poem for one of their first conferences I think that they've had, major conferences they've had on climate change. And I don't know about you all, but I am not super religious. So I was struggling a little bit with what am I going to say? So um, I decided to focus on faith, faith in collective action and faith in our ability as, as a movement to continue to fight. And so that's what this poem is about. Um, the poem also was written during the time when the news of migrant children being locked in cages was everywhere. And I'm sure, like you all, I was devastated and just I couldn't turn away and so it found its way into my poem because I saw so much similarities between the two and so this poem is my attempt to connect these two issues um, and to sort of understand this climate issue on another level so it's called the whale and the birds Lately, my four-year-old daughter has been full of questions, her mind a bird swooping to peck at every fragment, scavenging to name, provide order, find answers to her surroundings. This is my house. I am Marshallese and Samoan. My favorite food is fish and rice, she states, identifiers that steer her through the biting salt of an unfolding world. Her questions challenge me, teaches me patience of breath, of count to three, closed eyes, and yes, embrace her curiosity. Give answers that are honest even if they are painful. Questions I am sometimes unable to answer, like when we watch the news and she hears my conversations and I have to say yes. Some people do believe that children can be illegal, and yes, some believe that families do not belong together. I must admit, I am haunted by the images of the soft brown of a child's skin against the cold iron of a cage so similar to my girls after the cold of a swim joyful trails of sand grasping the soft brown of her skin and is this not scripture waiting to be written that islands that have until only 2030 to be habitable will create more children like these searching for safe harbor how fate awaits us in boats as well how hate looks like willful ignorance and a nation that forgets its own settler history and a man with a whale of an ego is similar to the whale in the story i tell my daughter at night the legend of the whale and the bird, a whale who balloons with arrogance, taunts the birds of the skies, deems itself dominant, powerful. Is it so much of a stretch to see the similarities between the cruelty of dominant policies? How over 2,000 children separated from their families is related to rhetoric that denied the reality of rising seas. How 1.5 becomes a horizon farther and farther to reach. So the questions that challenge me continue to circle around faith. Faith to continue to fight when hopelessness is so much easier. Easier instead to let reports of island apocalypse and malicious loss sink below the surface to the dark depths, dark places no one can reach. As I think this, I pass little boys on the corner, cloaked in the blinding white heat of another afternoon in Mijero. Cars swoop past, unaware of these two who slam scavenged green coconuts against concrete, shirts drenched, mouths wide open. They gulp down the sun, wipe their lips, glare at me for my staring intrusion. 
And in that instant, my phone signals an article. 600 people in Washington arrested by Capitol Police for standing against the whale's treatment of migrant families. And I am reminded, again, of the legend of the whale and the bird. How thousands of tiny birds fluttered across the sky, gulped down every drop of the sea, leaving an arrogant whale beached, thirsting, forcing him to admit that yes, smallness is a state of mind. And yes, an ocean begins with a single drop. And yes, maybe answers begin this way too. And yes, so too does faith. Thank you. That was Kathy Gentile Kishner of the Marshall Islands performing her poem, The Whale and the Birds. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A very special thank you to Vilma V and to all of the women whose voices you heard here tonight. We wish you strength in your struggle and we stand with you in solidarity as sisters on this, the planet we call Earth. And let's not forget the last day to, to register to vote in California is Monday, October 22nd. If you're already registered, make sure at vote.org. Org. You've been listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. Our executive producer is Ms. M. Our technical director is Free Will and Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. Thanks to CVG on the board. I'm Mari Nakagawa. And I'm Kenny C. Thanks for hanging out with us on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next.